Good morning. This morning's scripture is to be found in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. That's Luke 11, 14 through 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the man who had been mute began to speak, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. Others, to test him, began asking for a sign from heaven. But Jesus, realizing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed, and a divided household falls. So if Satan, too, is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? I ask you this because you claim that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his possessions are safe. But when a stronger man attacks and conquers him, he takes away the first man's armor on which the man relied and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and we rejoice that you are the victorious one. You sit on the throne. You oversee all things. And you sent your son to come and die on a cross for our sins. And in the power that you've bestowed upon him as the God incarnate, he revealed you to us, and we are so grateful. In that revelation, we learn that indeed you are a good God, that you would reach out in time and space and allow us to have a means to have access to you in your presence is but good, and we thank you. It is undeserving, but it's because of what Christ has accomplished. And Father, you've given us your word to learn more of you to learn how we can glorify you in this earth. And so, Father, guide us as we go to the text today. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a, a bit of a somber week, has it not? With 20 years since 9-11 occurred yesterday, uh, we were the first flight out of Europe uh, coming back, I'd had 40 college students when 9-11 occurred, and we flew into Newark and saw the smoke still smoldering after one week of what had occurred. And I can still remember all that had transpired, and it's interesting, the, the word that keeps coming up that I hear the last 24 hours is unity. We need to be unified. <laughs> and indeed, our world seems to become more and more polarized, doesn't it? Middle ground seems to be non-existent. 
And, and yet, if I took you back 2,000 years ago, that is exactly what we see occurring here in Luke chapter 11. And so if you would turn to this text, let's look at this. Because the question is of Jesus, is he of God or is he of Satan? Notice there is no middle ground. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Either this guy is crazy and evil or he's God incarnate. And so Jesus' authority is questioned in this powerful scene. If you have a set of notes you want to follow along, feel free. Hopefully you have those before you. And we see this miracle, and it, it, it defies all the normal patterns because the, the miracle is quickly given, and we immediately spend the rest of the time dealing with the reaction to the, the miracle, which is atypical. And look what the miracle is in verse 14. And Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. In the parallel text in Matthew, we're told he's, he's not only mute, but he's also blind. And so you have this scene, and it says, When the demon had gone out, the man who had been mute began to speak, and the crowds were amazed. That term is used 13 times in Luke. It's to stress the magnitude. And they are marveling, but as we're going to soon see, it doesn't mean that they have believed. Uh, the emotional response is there, but we're going to quickly see there is no heart change. Individuals can, you know, we all know people who've attended a worship, powerful worship service, perhaps they're even a member of the, of the worship team, and yet there isn't a heart change. Oh, they can cry with the best of them and, and pull out the hankies, but there's not been a change, and, and we're going to see that. We're told again that the, the man is mute, which I find very intriguing. We talked about this early on when we started our journey into Luke's gospel. If, you, if Jesus' life was, it's similar to like a diamond that's spinning, and each of the gospel writers are looking at this diamond, and they're teasing out material for their gospel. There's a reason Luke told us why he's pinning this gospel in Luke chapter 1. John tells us there are many things Jesus did, but I've only recorded a few that you might believe. And so, for one, it may be the focus is on color. Other, it's on a focus on carrot. But as the gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are pinning their narrative, they're wanting to tease out some things that they want you to see. And I believe Luke has placed this event here because it's on the hills of what we just saw earlier in chapter 11. And what was that? That is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And the focus is in verse 13. Look at verse 13 before we get into this study. It says, If you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your Father, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This man cannot ask. He's mute. In fact, I would argue that because he's indwelled by the evil one, the, the demons, he's incapable of offering uh, any request. And the role of the Spirit is going to be highlighted as well. And so I think this is why, partly, this is fitting here. And we'll come back to this because I think it's very key that disciples' prayer is going to govern this whole scene that we see here in verses 40, 14 through 23. Now, while Luke often intertwines illness with demonic possession, we have to remember as well, the, the Gospels are clear, right? Illness does not necessarily mean there's demon possession. Think about John chapter 9. The man is born blind. 
Remember what the, the thought of the day was, if someone has an ailment, there is sin involved. And in fact, you remember what the disciples asked, did this guy sin or his parents? And what does Jesus say? Neither, in verse 3 of chapter 9. He says, neither. It's so that God might be glorified. And so keep that in mind. But in this case, the, the new is directly linked with demonic activity. And that's clear. And again, Luke often intertwines this. Well, we're told that the crowd is amazed. Uh, that they're not amazed per se that an exorcism has occurred because we're going to see this in a minute about where does the power come from. Exorcisms were common in the first century. There were other Jewish groups that were doing this. That's not the question. The question is the power. What gave Jesus the ability to do this? And so we get to the questions in verses 15 through 18, or should I say statements. Some of them, and who is the some of them, uh, Luke does not tell us it's very common for Luke to use certain ones or some of them. In Matthew's account, this parallel account, he mentions that the Pharisees are present. And Mark tells us in his parallel account, the Gospel of Mark, that scribes from Jerusalem have come and they're asking these questions. So you have a, a crowd. I mean, Luke didn't tell us that religious rulers weren't there. He just says some of them. But we know from the other Gospel accounts and this diamond that's spinning, we look in the life of Christ, there are a whole host of people present, including the religious rulers. And notice what they state, by the power of Beelzebul. And you go, who is that sucker? We'll get to that in a minute. But he was known as the Lord of the dwelling. In fact, it's where it most likely originates from the Canaanite god Baal. Remember Baal? Uh, the Israelites time and time again got in trouble with Baal, or Baal is how it's pronounced. And so we see they're thinking that it's Beelzebub that is empowering Jesus. You see this polarization, right, with Jesus. What do we do with him? Demonic deception was a strong reality in Judaism. We could go back to the Old Testament uh, in Deuteronomy. It talks about prophets who are not of God, are demon-governed. 2 Thessalonians 2, the, the coming of the lawless one, Paul writes, is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, and lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. And so you have the frozen chosen, the religious few over here, right? They're looking at Jesus and saying, ah, this is of Satan. It's not the first time they leveled an accusation like this. Look at John the Baptist. They said the same thing to John. Oh, <laughs> that's of Satan. It's amazing, isn't it? In fact, in the Greek, Beelzebub is in the emphatic position, making it very clear, demon he is. That's it. We know exactly what's happening. Bless their pointed little heads, right? They're, they're accusing Jesus of being involved in the occult. Oh, he's a warlock. He is a magician, an evil magician, someone who can conjure up. And know what some other state, look at the text, it's interesting. They said Beelzebub, others to test him began asking for a sign, not just any sign, but a sign from heaven, which is interesting because Beelzebub is also known as the Lord of the heavenly abode. So they hear Beelzebub from this group and they go, huh, yeah, give us a sign from heaven. If you're truly from 
heaven where God abides and not Baal? Give us a sign. We want to see it. Uh, give us some, in- you know, and it's interesting as you look at this, because in later, look at verse 29. Look what Jesus says. As the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is wicked. It looks for a sign, but no sign will be given. Jesus doesn't play ball with them. You are not dictating. In fact, we're going to see as Jesus responds, he never responds to the question, give us this. He responds to the whole thing with Beelzebub, which we'll get to in a minute. But what specific sign are they wanting? I mean, think about this. They've encountered countless healings, exorcisms, supernatural events, the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe not directly, but indirectly they've heard the stories. What more do you need? Furthermore, it's unclear what they're asking to be proved by a sign. What are you looking for? You want him to validate his messiahship, his authority, his prophetic office? In Matthew's counterpart, the parallel text in Matthew, it says they want to know if he is the son of David. And I I really think that's the bottom line. These religious rulers are saying, okay, Jesus of Nazareth, are you really the promised Davidic king that we have longed for? Are you the Messiah that we've requested? Is this the one? And so the, the crowd, particularly the religious rulers, are challenging Jesus, aren't they? These aren't innocent questions or accusations. They're very serious. They're equating Jesus with Satan. <laughs> or they're saying, yeah, yeah, show us that you're truly the one you claim to be. It reminds you of our study of Exodus. If you've been with us in our journey through Exodus, there are several connections here we're going to make this morning. It's one of the reasons why we took a break and studied that book, because the Israelites, after seeing God's miraculous hand in all things, what do they say in 17 of Exodus? Is Yahweh among us or not? Is this really of God? Moses, are you, are you really one who's been sent to us? Another scholar who, who also sees this connections writes, they are pictured as exhibiting, that they, this crowd, as exhibiting the same attitude of doubt and stubbornness that characterize the Exodus rebels. Nothing new under the sun. God has moved miraculously. You could argue with 9-11, Despite the horrific deaths that were there, and we saw it could have been far worse. Many say that. My colleague's brother was in the building, went up the stairs to go get people out, and the fire department said, what are you doing? Get out of here. And he lived because of that. But he said it, it, it was a time when that building should have been full of people, and God spared that, but we miss that. <laughs> we miss God's hand of protection on our country and upon our lives and, and, and God's work in our midst. And these religious rulers, this, they're, they're right. Jesus is right in their midst. And they said, no, 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 this can't be. It's a dangerous place to be. Instead of rejoicing over the presence of the Lord, the religious leaders were rebelling against the truth of God's great gift. I mean, talk about blindness. The guy that's mute and blind, according to Matthew, has been healed. They're the ones that need to have their eyesight restored. They could not distinguish a work of God from a work of Satan. It's awful. And similar to the Israelites, the Lord is stating, how long will my people provoke me, is what he states in Numbers 14. 
One of my favorite Puritan authors, John Owen, writes, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or enticed, might it have its own course. It would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. That's where sin is going to lead. And, and the Puritan writer is so clear. And so you see this horrific response. And now compare that to how we are told to approach God earlier in chapter 11. I mean, think about this. Father who art in heaven, you know, your kingdom come, the whole prayer that we see in, in the first part of chapter 11. You think about that. You compare the prayer with the response of the religious rulers. There's a recognition of God in the prayer. There's a failure to recognize God. There's an honoring of the Lord. There's a discrediting of the Lord. There's a desire of uh, God's kingdom to come. <laughs> they don't even see the kingdom of God, which Jesus is going to allude to or mention in verse 20. There's a dependence, there's an independence. There's a recognition of personal sin in the prayer that we've been taught. There's an attributing of sin to Jesus. And there's an awareness of our frailty and here there's a belief that we're invincible. You catch this, this dichotomy between uh, those who have accepted the Lord and how we're to respond to him versus those who refuse to believe. Jesus gives his own assessment of his ministry in verse 17. But Jesus, realizing their thoughts, now don't you love that? They wanted a sign, he's gonna give you a sign. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, right? It's like what your mama used to do. I know what you're thinking, right? But, these Jesus, but Jesus, realizing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed and divided. And on he goes, and it's very interesting in his response let me give you a couple. First, their request or their char the request for a response, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus never responds to. It's just to the charge. Also, we see that Jesus is again providing his own assessment. And three, I want you to not miss this. There are three arguments Jesus gives to their charge and their question. First, their accusation that he is of Beelzebul. Uh, of Satan is illogical. Because <laughs> that, is, that doesn't even make sense, Jesus says. It's funny, uh, sin doesn't make sense, does it? You talk to people who, who are wallowing in the mire, and it's illogical. You, you try to, to rationalize or talk to them, and it's like, I, I can't get through to you. Yes, because they're in sin. And, and, and Jesus saying, it, it Satan is not going to restore someone. He's in the business of destroying. He's the author of disease, destruction, and death. Puritan Thomas Brooks writes, Satan promises the best, but pays with the worst. The promise is honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. But God pays as he promises. All his payments are made in pure gold. Isn't that great? Jesus saying, no, 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 no. If, if you've got civil war going on at any level, you're not going to win. <laughs> it's counterproductive. It's devastating. Why would Satan do this? That doesn't profit him at all. 
And so Jesus' first argument is, your accusations are illogical. He's not casting out by the power of Satan. Jesus is casting out the work of Satan by God's power. And that's the distinction here. Secondly, the charges, Jesus states, were self-incriminating. Notice what he says here. This is interesting. He says, if I cast out, verse 19, demons by Beelzebul, by whom do, and this phrase is very difficult to translate, your sons cast them out. Therefore, they will be your judges. The question is, who are the sons, and thus being the judges? Who, who is this? And, and many scholars will argue, well, what Jesus is referring to, these Jewish exorcists are part of the religious ruler, the religious community. And, and so what Jesus is arguing is, if you're going to question me, you better question your own people that are also casting out demons. You know, there's a, there's a problem here because they're going to judge you just like what I've been doing. That's one implication or understanding. Some have argued that your sons is actually the followers of Jesus, disciples of, of Christ later on, and that in future they will judge because you have not responded. Whichever interpretation you take, it's clear there's a much bigger picture here of, of what God is doing on this globe. And, and you saying that I am working by Satan, you're going to have to account for the other exorcisms and the implications that are tied there. And you ultimately are going to be judged because of your unbelief. And so he says, your assessment is illogical. It's self-incriminating. And third, their accusation was really an admission of his power. Is it not? They never questioned the power. They said, well, you did it by a Beelzebub, but you've done it. And so, and that's what we're going to see here, is that he could not defeat Satan unless he was stronger than Satan. And that's what Jesus is going to highlight. And they proceed out of the power of God. So let's look at this. And I think verse 20 is really the key to the whole scene. It says, but if I, and it is emphatic in the Greek, if, if I, Jesus, cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. Finger of God, what a strange phrase. In fact, Matthew's scene, Jesus states it's by the Spirit of God. You say, oh, we got a problem. Ah, uh, careful, careful, careful. The role of the Spirit is vital to Luke-Acts. In fact, remember, it's the vehicle for prayer or what God's going to bless us with in verse 13. And so the role of the Spirit is a vehicle for the gospel, for the salvation. Never does Luke link it to a miracle because he's, he's highlighting the bigger picture. Secondly, the immediate context which we see is not to confuse, I think, the role of the Spirit. He's, he's, he's wanting to show that that is for each believer. Third, Luke loves anthropomorphisms. He often talks of God acting in, in, in human form. Fourth, throughout, uh, we could argue, Jewish writings, the finger of God and the Spirit of our God are used interchangeably because ultimately what it's saying is God is the one who is acting so no, we don't have an error here. Why then do we use the finger of God, Luke? Why are you highlighting this? Because it occurs in Exodus 8. Remember our study of Exodus? In Exodus 8, the, the, the magicians, they could 
turn the staff into snakes. They could turn the water to blood. They could call up the frogs, but they could not produce gnats. What a bummer. I could do that with some peaches, I can assure you. <laughs> right? And you can't get rid of those things. The gnats. I think the miracle of the gnats is they got rid of them. But anyway, Exodus 8, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. <laughs> Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen. We talked about that. We studied that text just like the religious rulers. We refuse to listen. We refuse to recognize one scholar writes, in Israel's exodus, God revealed his finger by performing miraculous signs that confirmed his salvific intent for Israel. The finger of God is in the context, I would argue, of warning not to reject Jesus and his work. The magicians responded. And later in Luke chapter 11, we'll see that when Jonah preached, the Ninevites responded. And in verse 31, the queen of Sheba responded. And unlike these non-Israelites, those Egyptian magicians, the Ninevites, the queen of Sheba, you are not responding, you religious rulers. You, Jews, who should know full well who I am and what this is about. After all, the finger of God is also referred to in Exodus 31 when it writes their law. The finger of God formed you as a people. He gave you his Mosaic covenant and intimacy with you and you have missed the finger of God. We have a generation, I fear, that needs to be very careful. We live in an age where there are countless Christian books, podcasts, seminars, conferences, parachurch ministries. We are without excuse in this land. The finger of God has spoken, and we need to be very careful that we are not hardening our hearts because the finger of God is used in one other location in Scripture. It's found in Daniel. Remember? Menemini. You remember that when the, the hand of God, the finger writes on the wall with, and that whole Balthazar, and it was a warning to the Babylonians, you are done for. Because in Daniel 5, the reinforcement of a judgment warning for one's failure to recognize and honor God in the example of the imminent overthrow of one kingdom by a stronger one. The finger of God is significant. In this text, when Jesus says the finger of God, this is what is doing this, there is no doubt in my mind that what Luke is highlighting here is trying to draw us back to Exodus to say, you can't harden your hearts. Don't do this like the Israelites of old. God is working in our midst. Don't miss it. Because judgment is looming. And Jesus states, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has overtaken you. This is a loaded theological debate as well. We could spend all afternoon. What is that text? Uh, this is one rendering. Another rendering is the kingdom has come near or it's, it's arriving. There are two ways to take this text. One is that the kingdom is consummated. In other words, it's been initiated by God already. It's not fulfilled until the future, which is an already not yet idea until Christ comes and reigns on earth during the millennial age. That's one view. Another view is that the kingdom is imminent. It's, it's being presented in the, in the power and the presence of Christ. 
But how you respond will determine that. And it's interesting in Luke 19, it says the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear very soon or immediate. And so there's arguments that yes, it's, it's, it's future. It, it was presented and yet because of their lack of response, it's being postponed like the promised land. So there's two ways to take that regardless of which view the kingdom is a realm. The kingdom is that which is rooted in Old Testament prophecy, and it depicts Christ ruling, and with that comes also judgment. And that judgment we see in the next several verses, because in 21 through 23 of this text, Jesus talks about, you've got a strong man, which I would argue is Satan in this parable. The stronger man is God himself, who is going to spank Jesus, or spank Satan, excuse me, Satan is conquered ultimately at the end of the millennial age, and we know at the end of the millennial period he is cast into the lake of fire. The religious leaders and this crowd in general have failed to note who Jesus is and his role in relationship to Satan. And so at the end of this scene in 23, he uses both military and terminology used for shepherds to indicate either are for me or against me. And if you're against me, you are going to scatter the flock. You are not going to bring them in. So the idea is seen. Well, you say, Hophidus, thank you. That was a very interesting connection with the Old Testament. What does that mean for me living in 2021? I got the year right this morning. Uh, let me give you three points. First of all, one cannot be agnostic when it comes to the identity of Jesus you know the famous quote, it's even in your notes, of C.S. Lewis, a man who was merely a man and said sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil or hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman and something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit it and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so this morning, what are you doing with Jesus? Are you just going through the motion? It's nice, my parents believe in Jesus, and you know, I, I think he's a great guy, but that's about it careful. Even the demons understand who Jesus is and they tremble. You cannot ride the fence. Either you are against or you are for. And as Jesus stated either, and he says it in verse 23, if you're not with me, you are against me. It's exclusive. And you say this morning, well, yeah, that's, you know, I, I follow Jesus. Uh, uh, I, I would never embrace uh, agnostic system. I'm not going to embrace Douglas Adams or Richard Dawkins. Don't worry about that. But there is a danger of what I call practical atheism, which excludes God from our lives. No longer is he the source for dependence, guidance, and authority. Our source for all of that is found in either our bank accounts, our 401s, our family, or our job. Remember the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples earlier in chapter 11. Father, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. I'm dependent on you. I recognize you are the sovereign one. 
And so careful agnosticism or atheism can show its way in, in a practical way or in a theoretical way. But I think you know what I'm saying. Secondly, Jesus alone has authority and power to overcome evil and the evil one. The great tragedy in this scene is not that there was some well-versed theologians that had some wrong theology. The great tragedy is the one who could bring healing, peace, hope, and love is forfeited by their refusal to believe in him. Is it? You had God incarnate in your midst and you said he's of Satan? To deny, author Pink writes, to deny the divine decrees would be to predicate a world and all its concerns regulated by undesigned chance or blind fate. Then what peace? What assurance? What comfort would there be for our poor hearts and minds? What refuge would there be to fly in the hour of need and trial? Not at all. I was talking to a lady, a merchant, yesterday. She goes, this world's gone mad. I, I don't know what we're going to do. I said, ah, without Jesus, there is no hope, is there? She says, well, I, uh, you know, i got to think positive. <laughs> Thinking positive to, to hell, feel free. Not feel free. Please bend your knee. Turn to this one who has the author of peace. Pink goes on to write, there would be nothing better than the black darkness and abject horror of atheism. Oh, my reader, how thankful should we be that everything is determined by infinite wisdom and goodness. What a praise and gratitude are due unto God for his divine decrees. We serve a God who's victorious. We have a God who can cast out demons, who can overthrow evil, no president, no dictator is going to thwart his plan. Right? We come to him, as the prayer teaches, for our daily bread. We come to him for forgiveness. We come to him to keep us out of evil. And third, through the power of the Spirit, we as Christ followers, ambassadors for him in this globe, must recognize that evil exist and be prepared to stand against it. Martin Niemöller. Niemöller, as you know, was a Lutheran pastor. Perhaps you know your church history during World War II. He was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp for seven years because he spoke out against the Nazi party. He's famous for this quote. Perhaps you've heard it. First they came for the communist, and I did not speak out because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I didn't speak. I didn't belong to the trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I wasn't Jewish. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Whether it's standing up for life of an unborn baby to taking a stand at school, young people, or at work, we as Christians cannot be quiet. I love our missions conference this coming October. It's entitled Prepared to Stand. I love that we're having Andrew Brunson coming, and I love that we're going to be looking at what does it mean to stand boldly for our Lord, even in the midst of persecution. We have reached an age that seeks to marginalize the Christian voice, fails to engage in a dialogue of ideas or promote an agenda that leads to destruction. We need to be prepared to live out our convictions against a growing tide of hostility. One of the best books that I've read in the last six months was Erwin Lutzer's We Will Not Be Silenced. I referred to it time ago, and if you've not read it, you must. 
He states, it has been aptly stated that a Christianity without courage is cultural atheism. Isn't that a, a great? Let us resolve as a church that we will not bow to intimidation. Jesus commanded us to rejoice when others speak evil of us and to be prepared for what we are facing when he said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before I hated you. In the world, you will, not maybe, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's our Lord. No, this isn't Beelzebul. This is God Almighty who says, I have overcome the world. Lord, thank you for this powerful scene in Luke's gospel. Oh, we could debate some of the theology related to eschatology, some of the, the linguistic renderings there in the text, but the message is crystal clear that as we serve you in Jesus' name, the, the, you who are victorious, you who've overcome, we know the end and we rejoice. And Father, you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us, and we are living in an age which is overwhelming. The unsaved see it, as the lady yesterday. What are we going to do? <laughs> we, we live in a world that people are hoping it's, it's through medical research or science that's going to give us answers. For others, it's hopeful that we can find it in political party. And we know, at the end of the day, the only hope in healing and peace that comes is from you. Lord, oh Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.